1: Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast Brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes Hi Dolly Hello Let's start with the debate, how long can we hold off tights for? November the 1st so Dolly today is wearing espadrilles and Jeez. a linen jacket <laughs> and has bought the sun on a string. <laughs> I just can't bear to let go of the old flimsy flimsies yet. I quite like bare legs in winter. I a do thick
2: sock singular and a heavy boot. Singular. I do. I actually think October dressing is my favorite like a roll neck with a mini skirt and bare legs.
1: Yeah, that's very you. It's
2: nice, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, it's it's nice. like one month that you get a it's nice. When are you,
1: you just, gonna pull the tights up? Um, I'm gonna try and hold off till November, but it does mean you maternity have to keep legs moisturised yes. and lightly tanned. Yeah, maternity tights are a trip. <laughs> it's so comfy though. Are they? Yeah. Do they just have a, a very sort of? Yeah. Bill- a Dolly miming billowing a, <laughs> enormous stomach area. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they just have a billowing stomach area. Yeah. And I actually held on to them when I wasn't pregnant as well because then it's just like it's such a treat to wear, pre- <laughs> <laughs> to wear pregnancy I love you. my
2: ex-flatmate bell one of my favorite images of living with her that i hold in my head and my heart forever is when i came home and she'd come back from a bad date early and she was eating like the most enormous pyrex bowl of penne, like almost like a mixing bowl of penne, on the sofa wearing <laughs> her mum's maternity jeans from the 80s.
1: <laughs> I didn't know they even made maternity jeans in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. think every woman should have a pair of maternity jeans for when she just needs a little bit of a hug. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's
2: a good business idea, Panda.
1: <laughs> in the news this week, Boris Johnson, rapidly clearing out the cabinet of anyone who isn't a hardcore Brexiteer, lost his own brother, Joe Johnson, from the cabinet after his wife said, it's me or Boris. Former Zimbabwean dictator Robert Mugabe has died, age 95, and Jewel faces a huge fine for illegally advertising their vaping devices as healthier than cigarettes. Your beloved friend, Dolly, Majuli. I brought it with me today, actually.
2: What do you think about this? Um, I am a bit worried about Majuli, actually.
1: How have we never made that joke before?
2: <laughs> I think we might have done. No... We haven't. Absolutely not. I am a bit worried about me, Julie, because I have been... um, This will sound very boastful. (laughs) There's no way of saying this without sounding boastful. I've been running quite a lot the last six months, which is the same... That's when I started on the Jewel. And when I have a heavy night vaping away with the old Glacier Mint... I, the next day, if I try to go for a run, my lungs feel heavier than if I'd smoked 20 fags. Like, it's it's really, really noticeable.
1: I'd really like a Fox's Glacier uh, Mint right now.
2: Would you? Yeah, as a flavour of Jules. There's mango, there's vanilla. Were you ever tempted? I know you can't now, but no. would you, you weren't tempted by it. No. Do you know Jules' most rapidly increasing market and non-smokers. Yeah, I know. Teenagers. Yeah. Teenagers, it's... uh, But I've got friends who haven't smoked ever, and now, like, I know a bloke in his mid-30s who started duelling. Emily Sheffield, the former deputy
1: editor of Vogue, wrote a column, I think for The Standard, about six months ago, about how amongst her teenager and her teenager's friends, like, the biggest status symbol was, Mm. like, what jewel you had. Mm. And, like, every time a new flavour came out, they'd... like flocked to the, to the news agent like pogs uh, I think pogs were aimed more at like nine year olds <laughs> and Siri refuses to confirm that she's a feminist internal documents leaked by a Siri grader who was employed to check Apple's voice assistant for accuracy revealed that Siri should deflect questions about feminism by merely saying she believes in equality
2: hmm don't know how I feel about that
1: this is an improvement on her previous repertoire where she was downright dismissive on the subject, using responses like, I just don't get this whole gender thing. She sounds like a sort of 90-year-old man. (laughs) Or when someone called her a slut, she would say, I'd blush if I could. Now she says, I won't respond to that.
2: Why have they made her this fusty old Tory in an
1: Alice band? Well, as someone pointed out, a lot of these AI devices are designed by men, so it right the sort of slut line was probably quite um, comical, and maybe now the whole feminist one is also mm. flummoxing them mm.
2: this story's just <laughs> all so these cool. flummoxed men
1: in silicon valley i feel like we are talking about a furby except that it has huge data and cultural ramifications we have to remember that some kids are learning and um
2: speaking a lot to their voice assistant like alexa or siri or google if kids home. are learning about language in life from their voice assistant i mean that do you really think that that's like happening yeah i think kids are
1: learning about anything that they're um subjected to like peppa
2: pig i think that's probably where they get a lot of there apparently peppa pig is not very woke have you watched it
1: i think they're all uh, yeah i think it's a fairly traditional dynamic yeah it's interesting that that hasn't been more picked up on maybe there's
2: moves I haven't read a lot about, <laughs> pigs. or maybe all these very like right-on progressive parents are just so knackered and zoned out when they've got pepper pig oh, on that see, they don't even notice. Did she a
1: news article this week, which I have to she's made me roll my eyes about? Um, there's a really lovely children's book called Five Minutes Peace with, oh, them, I with don't the know elephant what. and her three young elephants. You might recognise it. She tries to have a cup of tea, but they all come and get into the bath with her. Right. Anyway, she's uh, she eats a piece of cake at one point, and I don't know. Apparently, she's like, permanently on a diet and lots of like the woke mums, have talked about the fat-shaming elephant.
2: I do see that point, actually. The retort to that is uh, they are elephants. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Do you know I can see both sides of that because I do remember picking up the word diet when I was about five years old, and that did not end well for me. <laughs> you know, I do think that, like, kids are... Kids are sensitive to that language, and and you want to be like a grown up lady or a grown up lady elephant. Do you see that, or do you think it's all just hysterical? Uh, yeah, no. I, you I think it's hysterical. It, I think she's an elephant.
1: Yeah. I mean, go purge Sadie's bookshelves if you'd like. It, it <laughs> wo- woke up her bookshelves for me. I can be Thatcher wine to <laughs> Sadie's bookshelves. <laughs> the woke Thatcher wine. More on him later. Also in the news this week, the world's oldest mother has had twins, age seventy four. My God. Amata Mangayama, who has been married to her husband for 57 years, gave birth to twin girls after IVF treatment in Gunter, India. I feel quite conflicted about that. Mm. 74. Wonder how much of her
2: kids' life she'll be around for. It's been a rough old week for Ringo Starr. Have you seen this story? I have not, but I think CJ has because he just did one of those little nose puffs. The snuffly laughs that I like. Yeah. So Ringo Starr gave an interview in 2017 in which he said he would have voted for Brexit had he been living in the UK. He actually wasn't saying that initially. He w- he was saying that he believed that it's important that we move forward with the deal after the referendum result, which a lot of people agree with. Some of the staunchest Remainers I know feel that the kind of lack of action with. Brexit post-referendum is a real threat to democracy and the kind of validity of our electoral system. So that itself is not a controversial stance. Then the interviewer pushed him for what he would have done if he'd been living here.
3: Would you have voted that way? I would have voted for Brexit, yes. I would have voted to get out. But don't tell Bob Geldof. (laughs) Why did you vote that way, Ringo? Well, because I I think it's a great move. I think, you know, to be in control of your own country is a good move.
2: Anyway, so this was back in 2017 and yesterday a Brexit-supporting tweeter posted the interview calling Ringo a true patriot. The tweet and the interview was initially shared by pro-Brexit accounts and uh, kind of right-wing accounts in America and here. And despite it being widely reported that this was from 2017, Remain supporters also responded to the video as though it were now, with many expressing their disappointment in Ringo Starr, Theresa Griffin, the Labour MEP for the North West of England said, I live in the Welsh streets, Liverpool, where Ringo was born. He doesn't live here, doesn't pay taxes here and has no idea of the devastation Brexit is already causing. If you want to smoke about Brexit, come back home, visit local workplaces and Listen the comedian shappy corsandy tweeted cut me in half and you'll see the word remain running through me but i am not the same animal as the people tearing down ringo star's talent for having a different view unless you've been in the beatles or voiced an iconic cartoon yourself let him be and my personal favorite came from matt haig he tweeted ringo star wants britain to leave europe but he also wants to be under the sea in in an octopus's garden in the shade which is also a very bad decision
1: Um, I'm definitely of Shappy Corsandis. yeah me too Um, uh, I'm in her camp I find this sort of binary polarisation to be really valueless and I'm getting really bored of the histrionics
2: where we take one person and sort of Project everything onto them. I agree. I think. It, I think it's a totally disproportionate reaction. And it wasn't even a story because it was from two years ago. And I think what leaving the EU would look like and what the knock-on effect would be for Britain was a totally different thing for most people at that point. So, firstly, it's just completely out of context. But I just think, really, what this reaction exemplifies is just what a continuously unresolved disaster we're in, and just how angry. A lot of Remain voters feel towards Leave voters and I do get that. I feel the same. I have one person in my life who voted Leave and for a long time I found it very hard not to tell him how much <laughs> you know he's helped fuck up our country and, and waste government time and money with what I believe was a totally misinformed vote but I also think that while Ringo's views are not the views most circulated on Twitter or voiced among celebrities or the the views that you hear in the pub in London, they are the views of that voting majority. So to act with kind of shock and disgust and to dismiss him or launch a hate campaign against him is to miss the point, I think. And increasingly, my instinct when I meet someone politically opposed to me is to ask why they they vote that way rather than see it as an opportunity to sort of scold them or, or lecture them. I mean, I don't think anyone should be telling anyone off. I just don't think that that's solving anything,
1: but increasingly, um, that does seem to be the slightly
2: farcical way in which we're discussing politics and Mm. political views. Mm. I also wanted to bring this up to check whether you know about what I would say is probably my favourite video on the internet. That's high praise. You like a lot of videos. I think I watch it three times a week and think about it five times a day. I don't know. What is this video? So it's Ringo Starr went through this phase where he did a lot of videos of himself alone at home in this, like, massive house in California. And they had, like, a sort of hostage vibe. There was no sort of sense of space or time. What decade was this? I'd say about five years ago. Oh, okay, quite recent. And he, maybe a bit longer ago, actually. They're always quite grainy, quite grainy quality. And uh, my favourite one that he did is him talking to the camera about how he no longer wants to receive... Any more fan mail after October the 20th. <laughs> and he he's obviously something has just tipped him over the edge and he's just completely had enough. And I think I love it so much because it just reminds me of that mode that I go into that you know very well, where I just feel like I've had too many
3: WhatsApp messages.
2: <laughs> or that my inbox is just, I've had too many emails and just enough is enough.
3: This is a serious message to everybody watching my... Update right now, peace and love, peace and love. I want to tell you, please, after the 20th of October, do not send fan mail to any address that you have. Nothing will be signed after the 20th of October. If that has a date on the envelope, it's going to be tossed. I'm warning you with peace and love, but I have too much to do. So no more fan mail. Thank you, thank you. And no objects to be signed. Nothing. Uh, anyway, peace of love, peace of love.
2: I regularly will just send in your voice note saying, it's going to be tossed. <laughs> I can't believe you've never shown me that. <laughs> in fellow
1: comic news, I want to introduce you to the HMV thread of tweets. I meant to mention this last week. It made me laugh so much. They're from a freelance comedy writer named only on Twitter as Laura. No surname, with the handle at Fairy Cakes who is reflecting on her surreal employment at HMV 11 years ago the Hilo sub-editor Anna wonders if they are in fact fictitious
2: comedy material but I don't mind it when I see those those anecdotal Twitter threads that are funny I don't really mind if they're real I think either way they're very funny I'm going gonna,
1: I'm gonna to read it actually one day a bloke came in wearing a pair of sunglasses claiming he was Paul Weller. He asked if he could have a selection of CDs by The Jam for free as he'd misplaced his copies. <laughs> Another guy came in every week to buy all the new singles in the UK Top 40. He was about 85 and had been a travelling DJ since the 60s. He hadn't had any work in years but he wanted to purchase all the latest chart hits just in case. <laughs> I can imagine you did. <laughs> Very much so. I hadn't written a book in 35 years but I just want to make sure I've got all the Booker. One bloke got banned because he kept covering his hands in blue paint and touching the CDs to try and get them for a reduced price as they were damaged. (laughs) A man tried to get a refund on a Tom and Jerry box set because the storylines were repetitive. One regular customer who looked exactly... (laughs) This is my favourite. Who looks exactly like the Queen bought the Priest's album four times. On her fourth purchase, I asked her why she was getting so many copies. How do you remember me buying them? Is it because I look like the Queen? Because I get very, very angry when people say that. And she did. One day another customer told her she looked like the Queen and she hit him with her handbag. (laughs) One woman knocked down a shelving unit of Cheryl Cole books and calendars because she said she had the face of a bitch. A man threatened legal action when he discovered that instead of a staff member ordering him in Candyman, the horror film, they ordered in a CD single of Candyman by Christina Aguilera. (laughs) A woman came in three times asking me to check the central ordering database to see if she could buy the book that the film Mamma Mia was based on. Channel 5 News came in to film some Vox Pops about the X Factor, but eventually gave up after everyone they spoke to in the store just ended up calling Simon Cowell a wanker.
2: That's so funny. I almost think that you want to print that and bind it and give it as a manual to anyone wanting to understand like the British disposition. (laughs) What's your favourite? I like the Queen one. I like the man with the
1: blue paint on his hands damaging CDs because it's just such a um, unsubtle mode of operation.
2: (laughs) I also love the one about Tom and Jerry narratives being too repetitive because I think that sums up this like very British disposition of just wanting to be angry and complain about completely futile things. (laughs) That's brilliant. I love that. I also obviously wanted to talk about the emotional support horse on a plane. <clears throat> Did either of you read about this? No. Nope. Buckle up. Last week a passenger brought a miniature horse called Flirty on board an American Airlines flight from Chicago to Nebraska. Oh, I love the name Flirty for a horse. Forget horse for about for a child. <laughs> for a boy. <laughs> Flirty the boy. <laughs> little flirty the docile pony was captured on video by several passengers standing in the footwell in earlier clips the miniature horse is also seen trotting through the airport an american airline spokesperson told the independent the miniature horse was a trained service well, animal and what type of horse was it was it a falabella then um i don't know because you keep referring to its size which makes me think it must be a it was very little i've Detroit looked at horse. the pictures of it okay um, I would say, like... Because that's different to bringing a stallion. <laughs> yeah, no, it wasn't a stallion. I would say it was probably smaller than a Shetland, actually. Quite so they, weirdly small horse. So they could have probably argued it was a dog. Yeah, it was. The, it would be the size as like, maybe a Rhodesian Ridgeback. I would okay, say. Cool, cool. An American Airlines spokesperson told The Independent, this miniature horse was a trained service animal, which American Airlines accepts on board following evaluation on a case-by-case basis. We recognise the important role trained service dogs, cats and miniature horses can play in lives of those with disabilities, and they are welcome in the cabin at no charge if they meet the requirements. In the past, passengers have tried to board flights with animals such as squirrels, peacocks and a turkey.
1: I feel like I recognise the... um." the idea of a emotional support peacock does someone try and bring their peacock on a plane did you I can't deliver remember deliver news of that
2: last year do you remember before um, jabs or exams at school and there would always be one girl with a kind of like suitcase of beanie baby toys <laughs> why
1: would you have a suitcase of beanie baby
2: it's like a comfort it's like a good luck charm No, I don't. (laughs) Really? Did you not have that? No. And everyone would have a beanie baby on their desk? No, I'm not. While they were doing their sats. I still have my collection of beanie babies. And my last
1: story to bring to you today is the woman who set up a GoFundMe page after her Tinder date called her fat. 28-year-old Jade Savage opened a fundraiser to raise back the £93 she spent on a date where she travelled from Leicester to Peterborough only to be told by her date uh, that she'd put on
2: weight. Um, That is horrific, obviously, but do we know if this was a first date? Yes, it was a first date. Leicester to Peterborough, it's quite a journey for a first date.
1: You do realise the story is about her setting up a GoFundMe page for people to pay for her date, where he said this. I mean, clearly he's a douche, but I don't think this should be the kind of thing that GoFundMe is used for.
2: But why, why would she go so far for a first date? The idea
1: that people should pay you back for a shitty experience. I think that's just part of life. Yeah. yeah, I agree. It's far for. I think it's a far. I think it's far for a date. But um, people will travel for love. But I mean, do you think that she should be paid back by members of the public for that day? I mean, I think it's entrepreneurial of her. Do you want to know how much she's raised? How much? Four hundred pounds. So she has she's profited.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, it sounds pretty horrible what she had to go through. So if she's pocketing some, it's not worth a fundraiser. Fine, maybe not a fundraiser page. I think maybe I feel I feel quite an affinity with this woman. I'm glad that she's made some money out of it. I mean, clearly he's an absolute toe rag, but
1: I do slightly despair. What's new in the mailbag this week, doll?
2: Since last week's episode aired, reports have come out that the Bristol teenager who went blind after eating a poor diet has a rare condition called Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, known as ARFID. It's an eating disorder in which sufferers will eat only a very limited range of foods and may have significant phobias and is thought to be connected to autism. A number of you wrote in about this, so we thought it was worth clarifying as it was obviously an important missing piece of information in the story as it was reported last week. I had not heard of that disorder before, so thanks for updating us on that. And we received some emails about the etymological beginnings of the phrase and hashtag hot girl summer that we mentioned last week, which has its roots in black culture rather than a way for Miley Cyrus to make digs at her girlfriend's ex. A listener wrote in with this observation... I feel like this is reflective of the countless times when black women's contribution within society is undermined and overlooked by others. I understand that the hashtag may have been more accessible to some following Miley Cyrus's comment on a Brodie Jenner post. However, I feel to say this propelled the hashtag into the mainstream is undermining both Megan Thee Stallion and the thousands of largely but not exclusively black women who have been sharing and celebrating the hot girl summer long before Miley flaunted it on Instagram to her followers. I must admit, I didn't deep
1: dive into the hashtag. It is sort of impossible to do that with every internet trend. But this shows, as is often the case with um, most hashtags, I mean, I always remember Me Too, which was a movement started by Tarana Burke in 2005 mm. rather than one started by, you know, Hollywood actresses uh, two years ago, um, is that hashtags, where they end up or where they end up being most visible uh, is, is rarely where they start, even a seemingly daft-sounding hashtag like hot girl summer Mm. so thank you for the background in response to our discussion of book acknowledgements a this is so great a listener sent in the brilliant acknowledgements page at the end of marianne power's book help me mum just called me please don't write five pages of thank yous i'm fed up of all these gushing acknowledgements at the end of books anyone would think they prevented war the way they go on instead of writing something that nobody's going to read i decided to skip over the implication that nobody was going to read this book so you don't want me to thank you then i ask no, because then you'd have to thank your sisters and your friends and your aunts and your uncles. And where does it end? Before you know it, you're thanking the dog. We don't have a dog, I say. You know what I mean, Marianne. So what should I say? Just say, thank you to your friends and family and leave it at that, and no names. Okay, so thank you to my friends and family. No names, but I hope you know who you are.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. What a great acknowledgements, page. And finally we were so happy to hear from Rachel Wilson who some listeners may remember as the woman who wrote in a while back to share her feelings of loneliness when she was in the depths of grief. We were inundated with personal messages of support from people who also had experienced loss which led to meetups. Now Rachel has launched an official support network the grief network for bereaved young people. Rachel told us Having run the meetups for a year or so now, I'm launching a series of events that will challenge what grief looks like as a young person and the launch will be a panel talk on the 2nd of October in Shoreditch. I'm super excited. We've got Ad Lloyd, Felix White from the Maccabees and Tailenders and Teresa Lola, the Young Persons Laureate on the panel, which will be hosted by me. Teresa will give a reading of her poetry as well. The event is called #StillGrieving. Go to www.thegriefnetwork. And you can find them on Instagram at at Network for more information. Tickets go on sale next week. And both Pandora and I were both just so happy to hear of how this has progressed. And massive congratulations to Rachel uh, for all the work that she's done and how far it's come. I think this might be the best thing that's come out of the Hilo. And
1: quite a few of my friends have actually emailed me about it and then Mm. gone on to get in touch with... um, Rachel. so it has already proved itself as a really valuable resource yeah. and it's really exciting to watch it um yeah. grow from from sad origins into something hopeful I think with with what she's building.
2: Pandora what are your cultural recommendations for us this week? I am currently reading da, da, da,
1: Testaments by Margaret Atwood. Oh what's it like? She's had the biggest hype yeah. of a book since Harry, Tale. Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Do you remember when the Harry Potter books came out? And oh, there yeah. were, like, massive... The excitement, and mm-hmm. I would go and buy it on that day as well. Mm-hmm. Dressed up as a witch. And in The Devil Wears Prada, one of the hardest challenges for Anne Hathaway is to get two proof copies of harry potter for her twins to read on the train and she manages to do it and there was this massive midnight event last night at waterstones people lucky enough to get a proof only got one i think mine arrived on like friday you know how normally you can get book proofs like, four yeah. months in advance arrived on friday and lorraine candy who interviewed uh, margaret atwood for the sunday times style said that before she interviewed margaret she read the book but she was basically locked in a room for five hours without her phone and a Penguin PR was guarding outside the room. So it's so clandestine. Um, It's good. I think it does a lot of backstory. I'm literally too scared to say anything, even though it did come out today, day of record, um, because I'm not really sure of the protocol around this. I mean, it's on the book a shortlist of six books, even though like one person had read it or something. But yeah, it answers lots of questions that I think people have. Gives a lot of backstory.
2: Um, it is quite different. Yeah, it's good. I'm enjoying it. Is it a follow-on of The Handmaid's Tale?
1: It's sort of both. It's, a, it, it's both a, a follow-on and then it... Stands alone. And then it gives information on the status quo in The Handmaid's Tale. So it goes back and forth. Right. Which is what the handmaids tell us. You know, at the end, there's that sort of hilarious postscript to if anyone finds this document from Gilead, and then there's like these Cambridge professors talking about it in 2195, I think, mm. about whether or not, you know, this pompous Cambridge professor is talking about whether or not Gilead really existed or something like that. Right. So, like that, you sort of go back and forward with time. I think it will do phenom- phenomenally well. If it's not number one on the Sunday Times bestseller list, I will eat your espadrille.
2: <laughs> Please don't.
1: <laughs> with a knife and fork. and thatcher wine has at last given an interview at last i mean honestly toss aside the testaments because thatcher wine has given an interview (laughs) to new york magazine's website the cut they talked to him last week um still obsessed with his name About once a week I tweet about how I am still obsessed with his name. (laughs) He is a book curator, if anyone hasn't been listening to Lila, He is a book curator who has sourced books for Jessica Chastain, Shonda Rhimes and Gwyneth Paltrow, which is how he went viral because he sourced 600 books for her bookshelves, not to be read but to be, you know, for decorative purposes. People like me felt quite sad about this news. Um, He has a book out called For the Love of Books, Designing and Curating a Home Library. And as the interviewer Hilary Reid points out, it's not called for the love of reading, but for the love of designing and curating a home library. Her tone is very funny as an interviewer. It's perhaps a little cruel at times, uh, gently mocking. At one point, she says that Juniper Books, which is the company that Thatcher Wine set up in uh, 2001, sells the classics and expensive hardcover editions dressed in decorative paper jackets that range from handsome to twee, the kind of gift that appeals to people who feel edgy, carrying a tote emblazoned with a John Waters quote. If you go home with somebody and they don't have books, don't fuck them.
2: I think I'm sort of with her, I have to say. Do you want a tote bag that says if you go with somebody and they don't like I mean, I have been fucking. guilty of Instagramming that John Waters quote before. Have you? I mean, I mean, exactly. I'm just one big old fucking cliche.
1: He says some, like, mental stuff. Here are some uh, snippets for you. I think what people realised with the rise of ebooks was that, hey... Any printed books that are in the world are a good thing, whether you're reading them or not. If there's a potential to read them and there's a sort of gravitas of having them through osmosis that seeps into your identity. I just think
2: that's such bollocks and that does make me quite angry. I
1: don't think books seep into your identity. And then here's another one. In the introduction for The Love of Books, which includes many lines from a TED talk that Thatcher Wine delivered in 2016, battered copy of The Catcher in the Rye in hand, (laughs) he assures readers that something almost... Alchemical happens when we add books to our homes. By doing so, we combine the author and their story with who we are and our story. Yeah, only if you fucking read it. I also fundamentally disagree with that. Not that people shouldn't buy books even when they don't read. Like, buy books that you haven't read or that you don't know when you'll have time to read. But that we combine our story with an author's. No, you don't. That's their author's story. Just All these books are not like seeping into me by osmosis and making me a part of their story. I'm not suddenly it's in it's a little life because I've read it. One hundred percent. What book do you bobbins. think you're in now that you've read it? <laughs> it's. I don't know. It's. All oh, that it seeps into your identity like osmosis. Do you know why
2: I think it pisses no, me No, I'm sorry, off. it doesn't. I think that you know, reading the novel is under threat as an activity. Like that is it. It poses. Is it like reading the um, reading? Is up more than ever. More books are sold. I'm than... sure recently, but like more generally, when you look at the birth of online culture and the decline and the increase of busyness in life and the decline in reading, the increase in perceived busyness. Perceived in life. busyness in life. Like, I went to a talk by Philip Hensher, who's a brilliant novelist, and he said this thing that is so scary, but I think is true. He said when he was younger, reading literature was as commonplace a recreational activity as watching TV or listening to the radio and now the fear that he has is that that reading a book will become as sort of niche an activity as like bell ringing or like you know collecting model railways and our brains are changing in terms of the effect that modern life has on our concentration and our ability to be absorbed by a book so i think that it's like the one activity and in area in life where it's this like sacred place of um you know removing one's ego from the activity it's private it's you're absorbed by a world it's a relationship that you have to that story and to that writer and to make it suddenly an aesthetic um and boastful activity that is as a part of displaying your identity publicly. It's like what fucking Chanel lipstick you wear. I just think it's really grim. But to do some
1: myth debunking, it that's a complete fallacy that our concentration span is changing and we can't read books. Your concentration span is as long as you want to concentrate on mm. something. I wrote about this, and I think it was for Elle magazine, so I had to speak to a few... Um, I think I spoke to a neuroscientist for it. And basically, the issue, the reason why we think we don't have a concentration span anymore is because we try and do so many things at once. Mm. So we cook whilst listening to a podcast mm. whilst also reading something. Or we watch something on telly whilst listening to a podcast while also reading something. Or we drive whilst listening to a podcast and having a conversation with a friend. So it's not that your concentration span is less. It's that you're trying to splice up your concentration into too many yes. bits. And actually, concentration span cannot be rewired. Altered. So we, yeah. yeah, so it can't be altered. It is as long as you are engaged in an activity. Mm. The difficulty is we don't make space to engage in that particular mm. activity by shutting off those other distractions. But as I said, I think I think reading is going up. What I would say is that the reading of novels is perhaps under threat because arseholes like me and you are writing uh, non-fiction books
0: that we
2: <laughs> try and encourage people Do to read. Do you know read. what? I saw a tweet about me this week which was really snarky, which said... Uh, basically said that I review too many books, that I put my name on the front of too many book covers. Really? Yeah, yeah, it really annoyed me actually. Did they at you in that? No they didn't, someone told me about it which was helpful. Yeah, it is always helpful. Um, And I just feel like I will never ever apologise because I had such a long period of my life where reading wasn't a part of of my day to day life and it is now and I'm much happier for it and I will never, ever apologise for being someone who champions that as an activity. Also, can you imagine having a dickish thing to say about someone endorsing other writers? Oh
1: hilarious. Someone's obviously just, like, been combing waterstones for irrational things to annoy them. This idea that you just have these piles of books, like, one on trains, excellent, I'll endorse that. One on an aquarium, like, as opposed to a couple of books that you really love. I mean, fuck off. I know. It's like people get annoyed that we don't talk about books we don't like. You know, I I have to say, I find it really boring when I go onto Instagram or Twitter and I see someone being a dick about a book that a a writer's written. If you didn't like it, that's fine. I don't think that we need to publicise everything we don't like. I think that's a massive problem with social media. I am sure when my book comes out, people will at me about how they haven't liked it and I will light a flame under
2: their butthole i don't need to know you and me both babe i'll be your will you be lighting buttholes um (laughs) do you know what i heard about the other day that i think is a really good tactic for both of us when we have people tweeting or atting us telling us that they don't like our book i cannot remember who the author is um and i'm sure someone will tweet or email us to let us know there was an author who did this thing online where every time someone would send her Um, a link to a blog post where they were really trashing her book or a horrible Goodreads review or just a tweet or an Instagram post where they just expressed how much they didn't like her writing or her book. She would reply and say, "Um, I want you, because you've sent this to me today, um, I accept what you have said, but it's really important that you now go and tweet a writer whose book you loved. Oh, that's a lovely thing. And I think that's a really just like classy gracious way of dealing with that kind of trash talking online do you think that some to sort of, of readdress an equilibrium of, of how we how we speak to each other and review each I think that's work. a really
1: lovely idea I wonder if she'll get some of those Amazon bars who will reply saying well all I was looking for was Tupperware
2: <laughs>
1: I can't tweet a book I like I don't like books <laughs> <laughs> I hope she finds some very interesting anyway books. Thatcher
2: Wine is not going to be on our dream dinner party Guess so that's Thatcher Wine why. no
1: I'm riveted by them I don't have a um, I've got no truck with him uh i do you not mind that people buying books for decorative use uh no i think it's silly but i think him suggesting that um i take on an author's story by having it on my shelf is sillier but i do delight in it and i will <laughs> absolutely be writing more about this somewhere <laughs> it's not wine sure it could end up being maybe the subject of your next book um, he's in this current one. Is he? <laughs> um, lastly, real gear change here. I read an interview with Anthony Ekendio Lennon uh, with The Guardian, Simon Hattonstone, with great interest. Do you remember? We talked. I think we talked about this last year. In November last year, Anthony, who's a the theatre director, was accused of passing as black in order to receive funding from black and minority ethnic schemes. And this came in the wake of a lot of people talking about... I think the Rachel Dolezal documentary came out, was it last year or the year before? It was last year. The response was pretty overwhelming and um, The Sun suggested that Lennon identified as a black actor because he wouldn't get enough work as a white one. You know, there was a lot of media piling and a lot of people being very upset and he was also very overwhelmed by this... The interview is incredibly interesting and thoughtful and illuminating because it goes. Um, Simon has a brilliant interview and it goes back over his uh, life and um, fleshes out a story that is very very different, uh, I think, to what you know those headlines on the Sun would yeah. say. Um, it's true that Lennon is not black. His parents and his grandparents are white. But as Simon Hattonstone writes, rather than trying to pass as black, Lennon has spent a lifetime failing to pass as white, from babyhood to the present day. And many years ago, he decided to embrace that, to live with the identity that the rest of the world persisted in giving him. And in pictures both past and present, writes Hattonstone, he presents as black and mixed race the one thing he doesn't appear to be um, the writer says, is white. And after years of being told that, Lennon forged a identity for himself. Of course, race isn't just about what you look like. But Lennon says this is something he's been contending with his whole life and it wasn't a secret from those that knew him. When the story broke, 48 black actors and activists came out in support of him and said they had known his story all along and supported who uh, he was um including Michaela Cole and Lenny James so you know some really uh, prolific people came forward and said that they um really believed in what he thought was his story uh most interestingly and this really does challenge the idea that he was trying to hoodwink anyone in 1990 Lennon appeared in a tv play called Chilling Out as part of the BBC's Everyman slot and um Simon says, watch... I haven't watched it, but Simon Hattonstone watches it. And he says it's riveting. It's a really nuanced exploration of race and class and identity in which seven young actors, including Lenny James, talk about the experience and spirit of being black in Britain. The actors play themselves, but... The scenes begin with improvisation and the end result is a scripted docudrama. When Lennon is asked about his backstory, he says he's from Ireland. The other actors nod approvingly and ask, which island? No, he says, Ireland, Ireland, and goes on to explain that both his parents are white. They look at him astonished, suggest he is in denial about his blackness. There are jokes about his mother and the milkman. And at the end of the interview, Lennon gets his DNA results back. So he'd called Simon Hattonstone and asked for an interview, kind of out of the blue, and said... That he had something to tell him. So at the end of the interview, he shares what he had to tell with him. And it's his results that reveal he is 32% West African. Now, wow. data results are not infallible, mm-hmm. but Simon Hathenstone says to um, Anthony Ekendaya-Lennon, do you feel vindicated by this? And he says, no, you know, the tests just confirm what he has already known and that one day he will trace those roots." Now, I'm sure there are people that will... Um, you don't disagree with what he said in the interview or um, take umbrage or perhaps find it offensive or not believe in it you know it's an incredibly divisive topic i just thought it was a really interesting interview mm. i think very often when there are headlines you just don't get that obviously it's a headline but yeah.
2: you don't you don't get the full story and um i no, but this story is a real reminder of that
1: yeah and it's incredibly interesting um the backstory and simon Hattonstone is a really good
2: interviewer as well so i think it was definitely in the um right hands what have you been enjoying doll I have, rather unusually, two vicar-themed podcast recommendations this week. Absolutely. (laughs) Of two entirely different podcasts. The first is the Reverend Donna Scopper, who was a guest on Alec Baldwin's podcast, Here's the Thing. Donna is a senior minister at Judson Memorial Church in New York City, which I've never heard of since this podcast episode. And actually, I know I've talked a lot about how much I love Alec Baldwin's podcast podcast. That it is, he's really, really great in the same way that Desert Island Discs is so brilliant. And Fresh Air, it can be brilliant for this. He's really great at bringing on people of interest who you otherwise maybe wouldn't have found who aren't celebs. So, I think that's important. Yeah. I think that's a reminder for the he- hilo, We've got
1: to stop booking just that
2: A-list, wall-to-wall A-list talent. <laughs> Um but yeah that's he's he's really good I think he always has a really good variety of mm. bookings there's one that he did recently that's about a man who's the expert on the gentrification and the architectural history of Tribeca which is obviously incredibly specific um but he but I think it's really good to have those kind of in-depth interviews alongside Interviews with kind of big Hollywood names, and to be interviewed with the same amount of kind of detail and interest and mm, um, enthusiasm. enthusiasm. So the Judson Church, from what she describes on the podcast, sounds like a very kind of sounds like a very progressive Christian community based in Greenwich Village. It offers services for the LGBTQ plus community, for sex workers, and for addicts, to name a few. It holds meetings on women's reproductive rights basically it's it's trying to intersect rapid social change with christian values and christian worship which is sadly something that's often in opposition no thanks to people like jacob bruce morgan <laughs> exactly and i really really love listening to donna speak she's an author and a, a kind of theological scholar and very funny as well and very down to earth And she's a practicing minister. And she talks on the show about how sad she is that Christianity has become so associated with the right Mm. and with conservatism Mm. and with Trump's America. And I have to say I've always been incredibly unimpressed by how quickly modern atheists often are or just like our modern sensibilities are to hold up Christianity as being the sort of opposite to intellectualism and, you know, think thoughtfulness. And I generally find most modern takes on Christianity to be often quite short-sighted and patronising. And I say this is someone who is 100% not a Christian.
1: And I am a Christian, and I think that yeah, as well. Yeah,
2: yeah. And I, I just think Donna's interview reminds us of a different type of Christian, and it is a Christian that I know exists, and I think exists in abundance, who is someone who rejects the intolerance that's found in ancient biblical scripture and instead embraces those very Christ-like attitudes of inclusivity, kindness, anti-judgment, generosity, and sensitivity. It was just a really refreshing listen.
0: So the mass for sex workers, are they people that what they're seeking is privacy? They want to be able to have confidentiality when they... They wanted probably more space to organize than Mm -hmm. to pray. Mm -hmm. Uh, But We uh, had Stormy Daniels people in a while back, which was really fun. Uh, She didn't come, but she sent things. We had Pleasure Sunday a while back. You know, we're trying to be on the edge and not be conceited about it. Mm -hmm. It wants to find the people who are outside of religion and have them tell us who God is.
2: I also adored Three Vicars Talking, which is a Radio 4 series in which Reverend Richard Coles, Celebrity Reverend Richard Coles, Kate Botley, who you might remember as the priest from Gogglebox, and Giles Fraser talk about, uh, and weirdly Donna talks about this phrase as well in her episode, hatching, matching and dispatching.
1: I which, can see exactly how that works. I love that. Which
2: is christenings, weddings and funerals. So there are three episodes of Three Vickers talking about those three different subjects. The wedding episode is full of very funny, sort of quite hoary stories of groom no-shows and saying the wrong names in the vows and someone standing up when they say, does anyone have, know of any lawful impediment? So that's a kind of fun episode. But it's the death one that I absolutely adored and implore everyone to listen to. It's nice. It's <laughs> it's really uplifting. It's like, I know that sounds kind of... No, 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 it doesn't. I don't think there's any reason why uh,
1: sending someone off can't be uplifting or have elements of joy.
2: Yeah, and, and actually what you realise when you listen to this is like fuck me, this is such an important part of life. This is something that's coming for all of us. This is something that most people have to deal with year on year in some way. And you just don't hear people discussing it. It's just not talked about. And it's, yeah, it's very funny. As I say, it's quite reassuring and uplifting. It's about the role of the vicar in dying, death, funerals and mourning. It's full of dark humour. There's a brilliant story about... Uh, on a deathbed, uh, one of the vicars has to do the sort of anointment, I don't, I don't know what the ritual is, with holy oil, and they didn't have holy oil to hand. And it was an urgent situation. The, the person was really nearing death quite rapidly, so they had to use Clinique face oil. <laughs> um, Kate Botley is very funny, talking about her relationship with her undertaker, who she's always had a big crush on. Uh, but it's also very moving and they all say that doing funerals, which might sound mad but you understand by the end of it, is the favourite part of their job yeah. and is commonly a kind of seen as a real privilege and almost perk of this line of work because they feel like they can actually offer something from their faith and their training and their beliefs that might be of some use to the people that are grieving. And it's just really warm and candid and it's... It's just a very, very unusual job and a very privileged position in life and a community that you very rarely hear talked about.
0: One of the hardest things I think about being a parish priest is when the ones you really love die. you got someone in the parish who's really on your side, who's yeah. one of your team, and my friend Jean was coming to the end of her life and I went to visit her and she she was one of those women that was always really worried about how you were. So she would always ask me every service, and how are you and how are the kids? You're always looking after everybody else who's looking after you, one of those kind of women. And I went to visit her and she said, I'm really worried about my funeral I said why is that and she went well will you be able to do it and I said well look I'm a professional it's what we do so I'll do the visit I'll be professional I'll do your funeral I'll be professional I'll do the burial I'll be professional I'll do the work I'll be professional but then when I get home that'll be my time and I'll get home and I'll put my jammers on and I'll hug my kids and I'll go in the fridge and have a bottle of champagne in there and I'll open that and I'll drink Sorry. it straight down and that's when I'll say goodbye to you and she laughed Anyway, she, she died, and I did the funeral. I did everything I said. I did a really good job. I was really proud of myself. And I held it and held it and held it. And those tears were prickling in the back of my eyes and the bump in my throat. And I got home, and I could feel myself walking up the drive. And I just had to get to that door before I could let it go. Mm. And as I got to the door of the house, of the vicarage, there was a bottle of champagne. Oh, so lovely! <laughs> and a little note from her that said, Today's the day of my funeral. Drink That's this and enjoy so it. nice
3: i cry at
2: that.
0: And that's the privilege, isn't it?
2: I don't often talk about music on the show uh, because it makes me sound like your friend's very uncool dad standing by his Volkswagen making small talk. <laughs> um, but I've just started listening to a band that I think our listeners would really, really love if they don't already know and love them. They're called Moona and they're a trio of three women from LA. They have a new album out called Saves the World and it's a mix of really beautiful, emotional, quite vulnerable, longing vocals and very funny and heartbreaking storytelling in their lyrics, and just a very powerful femininity that kind of moves through every song and throughout the whole album the very brilliant writer and friend of the hilos caroline o'donoghue tipped me off about them and we went to go see them last night and it was this like really gentle magic very millennial energy in the room the lead singer at one point said i know that some people have tweeted me saying that they were worried about tonight's gig because they suffer from anxiety or like crowd related anxiety. That is <laughs> it was quite I have to say it made me very uncomfortable and then it was actually really lovely because you're just not used to it in that setting. And she did this like group breathing that we all did at the same time. And then they played this like Pandora smirking. White. <laughs> <laughs> Caroline and I were like, Jumbo and rock stars used to throw like used tampons out to the audience and bite <laughs> off the heads of bats. Um But it was actually really lovely and they played this like big stompy dance track and one of the other members of the band was like, let's all enjoy dancing but let's all also respect each other's personal space. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of like the opposite of Riot Girls um, while still having this like really powerful impeachable energy they're not like that. am making them sound very mimsy they're not they're very cool and they have a very kind of strong um, very nostalgic 90s aesthetic yeah they
1: look quite all saintly Dolly showed me a picture earlier I know nothing about music but I did
2: um, I did enjoy their sounds I and played. look quite all i played uh, this song to Panda that I'm going to insert now that I love so much and it's the lead singer who I think is in her 30s talking to her younger self and kind of giving her advice from beyond and it's just so lovely and um, it's a beautiful melody and it's kind of like the millennial version of the sunscreen song
3: you're gonna cut off your hair with dull scissors from the desk in your dorm room learned by trial and error
1: don't my sadness
2: support for the hilo comes from secret spa secret spa brings beauty
1: treatments to the home avoid the schlep to the salon but london's best beauty and massage therapists straight to your home hotel or workplace through secret spas mobile app i have a confession to make go on i used secret spa last night sunday night massage in the comfort of my own bedroom i thought you seemed a bit overly relaxed today I'm deeply envious snuffling
2: through my revolting cold. You do look <laughs>
1: the epitome of health and relaxation.
2: Oh, thank you. It was so so good. There was a lot of deep tissue elbow action unknotting oh, yeah. I'm, I'm my crunchy old back. <laughs> it was so so good. Secret Spa offers a full menu of at-home beauty and wellness treatments including massage, manicures, waxing spray tan lashes and brows there's no need to worry about traveling home after a relaxing massage or facial that's left you red faced or worry about smudging your toenails personally i literally just rolled straight into bed yesterday afterwards and
1: unlike a salon you can book out of hours appointments from seven in the morning to ten in the evening so you can squeeze your beauty treatments in before during or after work around your busy day as a mother to a toddler i cannot describe how convenient this is i virtually never go to a salon anymore if i'm ever going to have a pedicure or treat myself to a massage Then I do it at 7.30pm at home for the
2: same price if not frequently cheaper than actually going to a salon. The quality of therapists is consistently excellent because Secret Spa puts such effort into finding the very best after rigorous rounds of assessment. I can attest that my massage therapist was utterly brilliant last night. Prices start at £35 and to enjoy an exclusive £15 off your first booking download the Secret Spa app Or visit secretspa.co.uk and use the code HILO at checkout. Thank you very much to Secret Spa. Our guest this week is Jen Brister. Jen is a critically acclaimed stand-up comedian, actor and now author. She's presented for BBC Six Music, written and performed on BBC Radio 4's The News Quiz and The Now Show. She has performed five solo comedy shows around the world and has appeared on our screens on Comedy Central, Frankie Boyle's New World Order and
4: Live at the Apollo. Do you know what I wish? One of my mates had taken me to one side and just given me an idea about what to expect. You know, just sat me down, gave me a little bit of a truth bomb. I would have appreciated this conversation. Brister, hello mate, Um, why don't you sit down, Um, just to let you know it's a bit of a horror show.
3: You're never going to finish a
4: cup of tea or coffee again. You're going to have to have a shit with the door open. Your sex life is over. Your social life is dead. And if you want to have an ice cream, you're going to have to have it behind a bin in the garden. Anyway, (laughs) congratulations. Last
2: week, her first book was published by Square Peg, an imprint of Penguin Random House, a memoir titled The Other Mother, in which she tells the hilarious, unflinchingly honest story of how she and her partner, Chloe, decided to have a baby, ended up with twin boys, and what it is like to raise them as a self-confessed middle-aged adolescent and as the other mother. Jen, welcome to the highlight. Oh,
4: I was, this is a real treat.
2: <laughs> oh, we're glad. It is, genuinely. Jen, in your own words, would you like to tell us your story about starting a family and when you realised it was a story you wanted to tell and an experience you wanted to share?
4: As soon as Chloe got pregnant, I wanted to just find something, anything at all, that reflected who I was in this, this, in our family. It was nothing. There was there was one book that you could order from the United States, which was really, really, again, very earnest. And I was like, it was more about how it made people feel emotionally about not being biologically connected to their children. And I was like, I don't care. It's not a yeah. problem. It's not an issue for me. So I sort of swerved that. And then I started to write sort of blogs for Standard Issue, which uh, was Sarah Millican's website. Yeah. And then on the back of that, People seem to really enjoy it. And a lot of people contacted me to say, I'm also another mother. This has been really great. The actual journey of of IVF and going through it all, um, I suppose we felt a little bit, not isolated, but... uh, Felt like outsiders, and what was quite—it's quite a universal experience—is wanting a family, and I felt like that was a bit of a shame, really, that we weren't included. And and, and all of the books that we looked at, were quite either very prescriptive or they were very heteronormative. And we, and I felt particularly as somebody not only that is not genetically connected to my children and not carrying them, that I—that was like, well, what is the actual point of me? So the writing of the book, I felt, it was quite quite cathartic and and i found it quite sort of like therapeutic to write it as well
1: kids lend themselves well to comedy i always really enjoy um when Ramesh Ranganathan talks about his kids and ali wong's obviously done baby cobra what were the preconceptions or myths that you wanted to shatter not just about parenthood but about same-sex parenthood was the experience different to what you had expected
4: yeah so there's the the lack of literature that was that was a big thing um to at least contribute something for people like myself I think Chloe a lot of the time carried quite a lot of guilt about stuff that I was like I don't know what you're feeling guilty about you haven't done anything wrong and our children are happy they're fed they're healthy they're thriving I felt like most of the time we were doing great I mean it was horrific because
1: Chloe gave birth to your boys and breastfed
4: she did breastfed them yeah 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 what what a legend (laughs) yeah
1: that's a double breastfeeding do you just have one under
4: each two footballs yeah could she walk with them no there was no walking with them because when you've got one you can do
1: the old walking feeding
4: no but i wanted to do it i mean if i'd seen her do that i'd be like hats off to you (laughs) that seems unnecessary um (laughs) that sounds like a britain's got talent (laughs) yeah (laughs) simon cowell's face when that comes on (laughs) We appreciate that you can breastfeed both your babies. but not sure if the nation needs to see it. <laughs>
2: so much about this book feels universal as a parenting experience. Whatever the kind of reader's family might look like. But you do talk very clearly and often very movingly about the specifics of having a family in a partnership of two women. Something that struck me in the early chapters of the book is how much more as an LGBTQ plus couple you have to think about becoming a parent. There's this kind of strangely, I hadn't really thought about it before, there's this strangely privileged position as a heterosexual couple that when you're trying for a baby that you just make a decision or sometimes don't make a decision To have a kid, and then you have sex and see and see what happens. Whereas there are so many more choices to make when you're in your position. Do you think you speak kind of early on in the book about how the prospect of parenthood was quite daunting and quite overwhelming? And do you think that that might have been because of all
4: these kind of decisions that you had to make? Yeah, that's a very good question, actually. I hadn't thought about it like that but yeah I, I think so when you're having to spend not just months but years thinking yeah. about it and stressing about it and there's a lot of you know for any woman that's gone through IVF it's it's a very kind of emotionally I think quite traumatic experience or it can be and you know some women deal with it really well like Chloe as I talk about in my book is a robot, but, um, you said (laughs) she got more stressed out about what the Netflix choice is. Yeah. I mean, like (laughs) literally she didn't seem to, I mean, there was so many hormones that she took and they didn't, she was, didn't seem to affect her at all. But, um, I think because there was such a lot to consider, I suppose that did make the whole idea of being a parent feel more, yeah, feel more daunting, I suppose. And I, I don't think I'd really thought about it before but you you know you you spend a lot longer working your way up to the point of the pregnancy I mean the nine months of being pregnant I don't know how you found it Pandora but I certainly watching Chloe being pregnant for nine months it felt like it went on for years 48 years yeah yeah just I was like when is this baby coming out um and so we had so much lead up so by the time the children were born it was like I think do we what's happening why you know it was, it was overwhelming um but equally you know you know as a couple that you, without a shadow of a doubt, you want those children. There is no, you know, there is no, oh, shall we keep it? Shall we? You know, obviously, you want it. Um, were you always sure you about what roles you would both play? A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I do talk about this in my stand-up, but there was... People did ask me all the time. They were like, you know... How did you know you didn't want to be the biological mum? And it's because I'm not fucking stupid, you know, of course. And why would I do it when I get her to do it? It doesn't make any sense. Do you manage, to something I read about recently is obviously we're all quite au fait with the slightly beleaguered
1: term emotional labour, which has kind of been a bit bastardised from what it was meant to be in the 80s. But I've learned about something new recently called the allostatic load, which is about like those really small, so even if you have share your childcare 50-50 like me and my husband do, allostatic load is like these tiny things that, often in a relationship if it's a man and a woman keep the woman's cortisol elevated like all night long when the man gets back from work his cortisol goes down and hers stay up because she's thinking about stuff like do I need to buy new shoes for the child or for my child or wear her hair ties kept so a really common one that I read about which made me laugh was this woman being like if I asked my husband he would know that she wore hair ties and hair bows but he wouldn't ever put them in himself and he wouldn't know where they're kept. And I was like, that is exactly actually what's in my relationship is. It's the allostatic load. Do you have yeah. the 50, 50 breakdown of the allostatic load as well? I mean, no. your boys probably <laughs> don't wear that many hair bows. They might do, but would you know where the equivalent of their hair bows was?
4: Oh, I, well, okay. So I'm just trying to think what the equivalent Or vice would versa, be. would Chloe know where the equivalent of um, the hair bows would be? Oh no, Chloe knows where everything is. <laughs> she knows, the, she's the organised one. Um, I wonder if there's
1: ever a full breakdown of the minutiae whatever yeah, the I, configuration of you as parents do you
4: know what I, I confess that Chloe is probably the person that anticipates those sorts of things and way ahead of I might think about it, but she'll be like, oh, yeah, I already did that like three months ago yeah. because that's when it needed to happen um so I would say that Chloe is definitely on top of all of that and I and I, and in many ways she. Has a better handle of that, I think, and also because I know that she's doing it. I suppose there's a little bit of me that goes, "Well, Chloe's got that," mm. but I do try to make sure that I am um, sort of I have like a general. I'm trying to really backpedal here. Um, <laughs> ge- generally, as so a sort of like a, a overseeing what's happening ac- across what our children. Are. I, I think I have a, a across got, genre yeah, expertise. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, but I would say that she's definitely better at it. I've never been good at that sort of stuff, even for myself.
2: It's interesting that when you, uh, how you're saying that in your NCT classes, maybe as a same-sex couple, you're more aware watching heterosexual couples, those kind of default traditional roles. Like I, I found it interesting in the book when you said that there was a couple, before you and Chloe had children, you remember meeting a couple with a newborn daughter at a wedding. And the bloke was like, Yeah, nothing's changed.
4: Just this is my
1: stay- favourite. One of my best friends who's got two kids was sitting next to garlic this other day and she was and she was like he was literally telling me he has a newborn baby and he was like telling her how easy it was and how nothing
4: yeah. changed.
2: She was like I can guarantee he's literally doing nothing no, totally I, and he was like it's a state of mind
4: yeah. <laughs> it's it absolutely true and he was he was like I went to a festival on um he, he was like I went out to a festival in September and blah, blah blah and I was like but and I said but what about you know your wife and the baby then like, oh they're staying at home but I'm going and I was like well then what? Hang on a second. Yeah. It was only afterwards I really thought about it and I thought, you absolute bellend, you're doing nothing. <laughs> yeah. And if your life hasn't changed because you're still going away abroad for work, you know, and you'll have drinks and you'll go out to nice restaurants and you'll come back late and you can't get up for the baby because you've got to get up early in the morning. And there's all of that. So, yeah, your life hasn't changed. But I'll give I'll give her another year before she tries to, like, smother you in your sleep, you know. <laughs> I don't know if it's a, maybe because... As a woman, you, I don't know, this is a bit massive generalisation. It's probably not very true, actually. But I think you maybe you anticipate more for each other. I feel like I don't really feel like Chloe's ever had to ask me to do stuff. I think most of the time I go, I can see that Chloe needs this or I will anticipate it. And what I've discovered, it's not that my friends, husbands or boyfriends are terrible partners. They just don't think about it. Yeah. Not, they don't anticipate it. And I think my friends just get annoyed about having to keep reminding them to, Could you just once just do this without me having to tell you? Because that's when that idea of being the nagging... Mm. And it's not. It's like, I, if I don't ask you to do it, then I do it. Mm. And that you still don't do it. So, Try yeah. to even out the load. And
2: I feel like I've, I've seen so many straight women in those relationships who have been... Who were, like, the least naggy, uptight humans that have been, against their will, kind of forced into this role where they are this naggy
4: person. Yeah, and I just find it... I. I and also, the whole term "nagging" gets on my tits as well. It's like if I, if you're not listening to me, and I can constantly having to communicate the same thing, that's not nagging. That's you being a, a twat and not listening. You know, it's it. There, there's certain language that is used around as soon as you have children that that is used for women that I find, yeah, re- really great.
2: The book details the very unique experience of what it is to be the other mother, by which you mean, as we've said, the mother of two children who you didn't give birth to. You talk about the kind of bewilderment and discomfort and rudeness that you you sometimes had to face from strangers who were, for some reason, kind of confused by your family. There's one bit where you talk about a woman in the park saying to you that she's sure she's seen your kids before, and it must have been with their dad and you respond yeah you might have seen him he's five foot two blonde and a woman <laughs> <laughs> i also really appreciated your description that i found really enlightening of how these sorts of constant justifications can make you feel like you're kind of coming out again on a daily basis yeah. and how kind of tiring that can be were you surprised by how people have responded uh, to
4: your family setup or was it something that you were prepared for I think I was prepared for it, but as my children have got older, those questions, you don't get as much of those questions, but when they are babies, people are fascinated uh, with babies and like to coo over them, they like to ask questions and... Uh, When you have twins, you become almost like a a circus, you know, sideshow. People are... Two girls, two boys. Yeah, they're like, you know, it's tall, you know, the hormonely, we've nailed it. Um, But they just want to... I mean, we just used to get stopped. We would literally get stopped walking down the street. People would go, are you twins? I'm a twin. I've got a twin. I know twins. I used to be twins. I haven't seen twins. I love the film Twins. You're like, who are you? Go away. I love the film Twins. You know, it's... So, um, and then those questions would come out and it was always excruciating and I would find it almost more excruciating when I was with Chloe because they would go, so who's mum? And then we'd go, oh, um, and then a lot of the time I'd go, yeah, she's, she's mum. Oh, twins. How did you cope? My God, you and your partner must be so happy. And then Chloe would go, no, she's, she's my partner. And I go, yeah, me, I'm the partner. And they're like, oh, 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 right. Oh, good for you. And then, and then you have to go through that whole thing. That how did you do that? It's like who are you? I would never dream of coming up to a straight couple and going, "It's twins! Oh my god! How did you do that? What was your position? I mean, <laughs> tell me everything. You know, you know, <laughs> how were they conceived? <laughs> um, so I, you get to a point where you you do get a sort of I suppose you just lose patience with it. I, I had I had a lot more patience at the beginning, and then it gradually sort of like you get to the point where you just want to go. Nah two fingers go away um,
1: you lay bare a lot of the insanity of parenthood which made me laugh because it is just so universal as you say whatever your are set up as a family there are some things that are just completely uh ubiquitous and one of which is struggling with the tiredness which you just can't really predict until you have children and you say you became a zen master of insane sleeplessness and you write in detail as well about the evolution of their poo which is dolly's favorite subject by the way oh
4: yeah i'm so sorry. that really upsets some people so i'm, I'm not good with that. poo jen I yeah know. I'm so i really sorry. enjoyed it,
2: it pandora is great with poo so
1: you too you know yeah so the poo segue from a mild-mannered continual thing into something that reeks so badly that it seeps into the walls uh, have you always
4: found humor in the scatological i do think it's <laughs> quite funny <laughs> But um uh, I I appreciate it. it's not for everyone. Um I remember when I was It's not my... for everyone, it's from everyone. It's definitely from everyone, but definitely not for everyone. Um I um I think poo's funny and I think um I'm learning that not everyone does. I used to do <laughs> material about I did a poo story on stage and I had to ditch it because people were either laughing or groaning and I'm like, I can't have groaning. I yeah. cannot have groaning. I think that sometimes poo stories are better written down as well. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I think really they're
1: great your life, right,
4: actually. There's definitely a power in the written poo story. Yeah,
2: I think I there's, know. yeah, <laughs> Poo squared. A part of the book that I really enjoyed reading was your honesty on how life changes after you have children and how you have to accept that you're, when you have kids, you're in a different life and that you are a different version of yourself and i really appreciated your honesty on that and i think that's such a generous thing to give because because of what we were saying about how dogmatic uh parenting can be it feels like it's rare that parents can admit so candidly about all the thing the things they've lost or the things that they miss because somehow that might negate their their kind of love of parenting which obviously it, it doesn't but you talk about how your life now first and foremost doesn't centre around you and it's one where hangover with two children means a night of drinking comes with a fun tax. Um, how have you found that shift as the kids have gotten older?
4: Is it something you've accepted or do you still kind of mourn your old life? I don't mourn my old life at all. I accept all of the sacrifices that come with being a parent I, 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 let's not forget I was 39 when they were born so if I haven't got that out of my system also as you get you know once you hit your 40s you've, you, your energy levels diminish quite dramatically but there are times when you would like you know you can't be impulsive in the way that you used to you can't say oh I've always wanted let's go to Madrid for the weekend or that sort of stuff mm. we did you know we did take the children to Madrid <laughs> why did we do that <laughs> um and we spent the whole time we were there going wouldn't it be lovely if we were here without the kids <laughs> you know so there's stuff like that of course you you know th- there are obviously things that you're going to miss when you have children but um the things that I've gotten from having them far outweigh anything that I missed from before mm. um and so I'm quite content with with where I am and also with my job I suppose as a stamp comedian I do get to go away enough that if I want to have that occasional blowout I can still sort of you know have that. Chloe doesn't get to have it quite as much as I do.
1: I was so determined um, for motherhood not to change my own uh, to not to change my identity and it's such a fallacy I was like chasing the impossible and eventually it ate me. I'm much more comfortable in that role although I've still got far to go do you think that you have completely reconciled your identities now do you think mothers or women ever do
4: i don't know that you have to and i think it's okay for there to be for you to feel conflicted sometimes and for you to feel like oh this isn't exactly what i wanted all the you know, you all are gonna fragmented, yeah, there's, it will be fragmented, and I, I think we're, we're told that well, you made your choice, so you've got to be happy about it all the time. I've, I, I challenge anyone to have made any decision that they're 100%, you know, completely delighted with every second of the day, you know, even if it's a job you love, there are points where I'm sure, you know, I'm sure before you, for example, Dolly, wrote your book, you'd be like, if I could write a bestseller, that would be me happy for the rest of my life, and then you write a bestseller, and you're like, well. There's a name what about for the next ad- bloody book, yeah. Arrival yeah, yeah.
1: Fallacy. Yeah. We talked about
2: that. Yeah,
4: there, there this is this idea that like you'll have this one thing and then
1: your life will just be
2: golden. But also, I think what I have realised very acutely in the last year is that with the acquisition of every new thing in your life, you want something else? No, beyond that, there are it comes with like 50 things to worry about.
4: Yeah, I, I, I definitely feel like as I get to a point with my career that my profile has gone up not 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 sort of dramatically but significantly enough that I've noticed it I mean, I've seen the bodyguards in the corner yeah don't <laughs> shut up you two um <laughs> then it's definitely feels like it's created a bit more anxiety which I don't think yeah. I had before and I don't know what that anxiety is about or why is it annoying as well. <laughs> you know it's just it's a weird thing that I feel I have like 3 a.m wake-ups about did I what did I say that to that person on the interview, or, do, you, do you know what yeah, I mean? Like, whereas yeah. before, I'd be like, "Well, no one's listening, no one cares, it doesn't matter." Yeah, you know. And yeah. now, if you feel like you're you're under a, you're being examined in a way that you weren't. And so, when you get any kind of success, the you feel like you're being examined even closer and closer, and uh, and that can mean that you don't enjoy the success that you have which is a shame, really, because you deserve to enjoy it. Mm. But I think the great thing about my children is that I'm not one of these, I'm terrible, really. I I could really benefit from reading a self-help book, but I don't, I sort of, anything that might be positive for me, my mental health, I tend to, like, ignore it. Uh, And I think my children have been really good at, at grounding me and demanding of my time in that moment and making me live in the moment so that I'm not, just this kind of self-involved narcissist that I think I was becoming, or that I probably was, um, and I've really enjoyed that. I found it really freeing because I'm not just a mum, and I'm not just a stand-up comedian, and I'm not just a you know a partner. There's lots of sides to me, and and um, so, are you pregnant? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just <laughs> noticed that. <laughs> Said it went, don't say that just in case, that is a risky old exclamation yeah and I it's just,
2: not that risky now i was like
4: i was like you've got a small enough frame for me to be able to say that oh
2: congrats
1: that's brilliant thank you that sounded a bit like a twist on the britney spears song i'm not a girl not yet a woman not the pregnant bit, oh, right.
4: bit I, before. I was like I don't, i'm really
1: i'm not getting that <laughs> no 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 exactly about that. you were you were funny as well about there was like a delicious irony in the way that um Motherhood changed your work as well you said sort of ironically as you got more exhausted and gave less of a shit because you just had to get in there and get out you started to see this real progression in your career
4: yeah was that um gratifying or mystifying it was mystifying <laughs> because I was so tired and um maybe that's a good lesson for us all yeah, just get, turn get up out of sorts and nail it. Yeah, get to the point where you feel like you're dead and then try and do your job. Um, I think it actually is a good, because when I read that section of the book, I did feel like that is a good lesson to us because basically
2: what it's saying is, it's like that Diana Athill quote that we read on the high low when she died, where she said, I've never been ashamed of the fact that life outside of my office has always been more important to me than the work I did in the office, which it's quite a simple sentiment, but something that you don't hear that much as an admission. And what really I got from you saying, from you describing that period of your life was when my home life and my relationship to my family and my partner became the most all encompassing, important thing. I stopped being so anxious and obsessing over the work. And therefore the work was just this way I paid my bills, but also this thing that I did in the evening. And then suddenly it just got so much better.
4: Yeah. I, I, I think there's a danger when you are dissatisfied with where your career is going, that you obsess about it. You become almost sort of irrational about how you can move your career forward. And you kind of strangle every opportunity because it becomes, if I don't nail this, then um, then it's it's like an all or nothing. Every mm-hmm. opportunity is... when The reality is it's never all or nothing. And if you go in and you're just, like I was just almost defeated by the day and I just wanted to get through, then I stopped offering... I think I stopped um, uh, doing... Because st- with stand-up comedy, if you turn up as a comedian and you're like... You're saying, please like me. Yeah, desperate to please. The yeah. audience, even if you look really confident, if that smell your thing... They can smell it. They'll smell mm-hmm. it off you and they're like, oh, she seems a bit desperate. But if it's, once I got to the point where the children were like, you know... You
1: wanting them to
4: like you? Yeah, I was more worried about them liking <laughs> like, me. Yeah, that was the, my hardest audience. Um, but if you go in as a performer and you're not, off, you're not asking. You're just, you're just saying, "This is it. This, this, take this. This is what I'm doing." Audiences love that. Mm. They love it. They're like, "Oh God, she's like, mm. she's a maverick," you know. <laughs> um, and so that really works. And um, and then also. I don't know if this is just because of, as a comedian, I've just been going for such a long time and it's just a natural progression or what. But also I do feel like now the subject matter that I talk about on stage is way closer to the stuff I've wanted to do and I haven't been able to make it funny or I I don't feel like I had the the tools or the the skill to do it. And now I really feel like I can. And so I feel much more fulfilled in my work being able to see you know make funny the stuff that i actually care about rather than just you know doing impressions of my mum which are hilarious but um, (laughs) i love those. we're we're boring you
1: did one earlier in it it's very good
2: (laughs) (laughs) jen thank you so much for joining us on the hilo the other mother is out now and we urge you to read it it's a very funny often tender account of parenting and
4: family life thank you so much i've had a ball
2: thanks jen Thank you very
1: much for listening to The Hilo. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. It helps other people find us and helps boost us in the charts. You can email us, thehiloshow at gmail.com or tweet us at The Hilo Show. Bye-bye. Bye.